1: Hello, and welcome to The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries, connected by a single theme, that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, I'm joined by Catherine Bray, a commissioner, producer, and writer-director, and the head of arts at Next Generation broadcaster Little Dot Studios, who also produced this podcast. Catherine's first feature film as a producer was Charlie Shackleton's 90s teen movie doc, Beyond Clueless, followed by iPlayer essay feature, Fear Itself. She is a co-founder of the film company Loop, whose work includes Missing Episode for BBC 2, the Biffa and Gerson Award-winning Fish Story, and Lasting Marks*. Catherine's debut as writer-director was a film called Meet the Family, an idiosyncratic look at how directors and screenwriters have tackled the multi-generational mess that is families in a special hour-long episode of Inside Cinema for BBC 4. Released this year, Catherine's second outing as writer-director is called Guilt-Free Pleasures, which dissects what can be called a cinematic guilty pleasure... And for listeners in the UK, it can currently be seen on BBC iPlayer. Our interview was a really fun and thought provoking examination of the role of performance and fabrication in documentary, and the different responses that audiences can have to the idea that documentary filmmaking is molding or even manipulating the truth. So let's go to that interview. So to get things started, I'd love to know if you remember when you first became interested in documentaries as an audience member, were they something you enjoyed before you started making them?
2: I think my first encounter with documentary would actually be a show I was completely addicted to as a child called You've Been Framed, which is an ITV TV show of camcorder mistakes where people fall over at weddings or you know off motorbikes, that kind of thing. <laughs> It's not traditionally what people think of as a documentary, but it's stuff going wrong on camera in real life. So I think it counts.
1: So before we talk more in depth about your documentary picks for today, I want to get a sense of how you started working in documentary. What led you to your first producing credit?
2: So it was almost kind of an accident. And I really hate it when people say that in in interviews, by the way. I'm fully aware of playing into this sort of trope of like, oh, I just fell into it. But it really was the case. My friend, Charlie Shackleton, was making a Kickstarter documentary called Beyond Clueless, all about teen movies of the 90s and noughties. So, you know, The Craft and Mean Girls and all of that kind of film. And I said, I would love to be involved in this in some way. Maybe I could be the publicist. And he said, sure. So I signed up as the publicist. And I think I I also actually was one of the people donating money to make the film happen. So I was also a backer of this Kickstarter film. And, you know, as the production period sort of went on, I just started getting more and more involved in the film. I, I was. Probably a total nuisance. I wouldn't go away. I was just getting involved in everything that I could, sort of beyond the remit of a publicist. And eventually, by the time the film came out, they were like, okay, we need to credit you as a producer because that's what you've been doing. Like I say, some reservations about people who position their yeah, ambitions and lifelong dreams being achieved as these happy accidents. But in this case, it was really an evolving process rather than sort of some five year plan where I was like, okay, by 2014, I'm going to be producing on my first documentary feature.
1: I want to talk about the theme that unites your picks, this idea of performance versus reality, and the way that both can be constructed. What interests you about those particular concepts?
2: I mean we're always trying to gauge as human beings how genuine the people we're talking to are, you know, to what extent do I trust this person? To what extent is somebody telling me the truth or putting on a performance? I think that's something that even very small children do quite unconsciously and There's obvious reasons for it. You know, we've evolved that way because we need to know whether we can trust people, whether they're our friends or not. And I guess there's been a real explosion of that kind of media over probably the last 20 years or so with the rise of reality television. And we just find it fascinating, those close-ups in real time, trying to work out what somebody's motives are, whether a little sort of glance to the side means that actually they're saying something they don't mean. And most of my favourite documentaries will be exploring that in some sense, the idea of capturing human behaviour as it evolves in real time. And has that theme of
1: performance versus reality informed your own work in any way? I'm thinking specifically of your short film Fish Story, where myth, anecdote and truth sort of Coalesce.
2: <laughs> Fish Story was such a fun film to make. That was one of my early producing credits, again, with Charlie Shackleton and our collaborator, Anthony Ng. That film came about, I mean, as you say, it was really that idea of anecdote and performance, because we had this friend, Casper Salmon, That really is his name. And he's a little bit of a raconteur. I mean, you've probably got friends like this in your circle, like the one who's always got a story and really enjoys telling it. And Casper had this story about his childhood. His grandmother apparently used to never get bored of relating the time that she, as someone with the same surname as Casper, another fish surname, Pauline Salmon, she was supposedly invited to the opening of an aquarium in Wales. To celebrate the opening of the aquarium, they had invited all people with fish surnames like Salmon, so, you know, the pikes and the herrings, and that they were all invited to celebrate this opening with a celebrity, Michael Fish, the. Famous weatherman or famous in the UK anyway, presiding over it as the VIP guest because his surname was Fish as well. And, you know, Casper is one of these people who can tell this story brilliantly better than I did just now. And it was one of our favorites to sort of ask him, you know, tell us about the time with Michael Fish and the aquarium and all the fish surname people. But what we weren't sure was really whether This story was actually true or whether it was exaggerated or, you know, had Casper completely made it up. So Charlie decided to investigate it. It started out actually as an audio documentary before sort of visual elements came in. Sort of thought maybe it would be an item for a podcast or something like that, but it grew and grew in the telling and eventually turned into a full-on short film. But I think one of my favourite aspects of the film is Charlie ringing up random fish-surnamed people from the area of Wales in the UK where this story was supposed to have taken place and just kind of cold-calling them and talking to various confused herrings and pikes and salmons to find out whether they remembered this thing happening. So, yeah, that that film was all about that sort of idea. I mean, I don't think we thought that that film would go on to be as big as it was because it's it's a very low-budget film and in the kind of the filmography of things that we've made, it's had the most impact. I mean, it won a Grierson and a Biffa Award, which was ridiculous, given its roots as this sort of pub anecdote. But yeah, you know, if that turns out to be the most famous thing we've we made, and it's this ridiculous story about fish surname people in North Wales, I'm happy. And so considering that you've worked across different
1: mediums, I'm wondering if you could talk about how you decide which ideas fit which formats.
2: I think you've got to be guided by the idea. I mean, with Fish Story is a good example, actually, because to begin with, when it was going to be an audio documentary, it made sense that the spine of it would be ringing these people with fish surnames up and recording the call and sort of enjoying their mostly baffled responses until, you know, you hit on the person who thinks they maybe remember something. But then because it did, I've spoiler alerts for Fish Story, but because it did turn out to be true at that stage in the story, it became. Obvious that we would need to go to Wales and find the aquarium and visit the people involved and try to interview Michael Fish. And at that point, it became a visual documentary because you want to see those things. That's not the same as a telephone call. So I think being guided by the story is the important thing. I think too often you see documentaries where people are sort of guided by what they feel is the importance of the theme rather than necessarily how that fits the medium. Like they'll find a really important issue or a really important story, and they want to make a documentary, and they just put those two things together. But I think if you can, just be really strict with yourself about what format, scale, and sort of style this story suits. And it might be that it suits fiction better than documentary. It might be that you want to do an adaptation around some of those same important themes, because there are things you can do in fiction you can't do in documentary, and vice versa. So
1: speaking of fiction, let's go to your first pick, which is a film called Fraud. Can you tell us about when you first saw this particular film and what it's about? So
2: Fraud is a film that I first saw at Hot Docs Film Festival, fantastic documentary festival in Canada. And I remember the screening of this one vividly because... The audience was super angry afterwards. There was a very heated Q&A. I think you know, Hot Dogs is a fantastic festival because you really mix people working at the cutting edge of experimental documentary like Dean Fleischer-Camp, who made this film, with you know, a local audience, some of whom had quite a traditional idea of what a documentary is and were furious that this film didn't fit into it. They felt like they'd been lied to If you haven't seen it, I mean, see what you think. See whether you think this sounds like a lie. Essentially, when you watch Fraud, you're going to be introduced to this family. You're going to see them doing lots of things that families do, unboxing presents at Christmas, going for a drive, kids playing in the garden, very, very normal stuff. And it's all very low-res, kind of handheld camcorder-type stuff. And as the film progresses... The way that it's edited gives you the impression that this family have committed insurance fraud, burned down their house, and then moved to a new location to repeat the process of getting ever deeper into credit card debt. Now, <laughs> I should say that the real family whose videos this film is composed of, and who are a genuine family who've been uploading videos of their family life to YouTube for decades, the suggestion in real life is not that they are insurance fraudsters. Dean created this narrative out of entirely real clips. None of it was staged. You know, I mentioned the house burning down. That's like footage of a neighbor's house that did happen to catch fire and that they were out there filming. And he'd become fascinated with this YouTube channel where this family were uploading such a lot of their home videos and he ended up getting in touch with them and saying, "Can I make a film out of this?" So, is that a documentary? All of it at the time of filming was filmed without the intention of it being a fictional film. But when Dean put it together, he's created a narrative that we understand a certain way and... That's through the editing. I mean, he hasn't tweaked the footage or anything like that. It's entirely an exercise in juxtaposition. So I think what it reveals is something absolutely fascinating about our need to construct stories from the available evidence And the fact is that we will do that in a way that can't actually be backed up by the facts. It's that idea that we think if we see something real and the footage is real, that we know the truth, but it's absolutely not necessarily the case. So I think it's a really important study in sort of media literacy and not necessarily assuming that what is true is the most obvious interpretation of a narrative that we've been presented with.
1: Right. I actually had a professor in school who often said that the most human thing that he's ever come across is a constellation, like the concept of a constellation. It's literally like stars like out in the sky. And then someone decided, basically connected the dots and like, oh, that's a that's the Big Dipper. That is this different astrological sign. And like thinking about how humans are sort of programmed to make connections, even if those connections can be misleading or not quite accurate. So it's kind of interesting that like this film does really dig into the idea of like how humans make connections with adjacent images and things like that.
2: That's so profound. I love that.
1: And so thinking about fraud and how that film has provoked such a heated response, as you mentioned, because of its elastic or you could even argue contentious sense of what a documentary is, in that it contains a lot of fiction and constructed narrative. Did seeing fraud change your understanding of what a documentary could be? I
2: think, for sure, the idea that this film could be called a documentary by a serious documentary film festival was a magical thing to me, because I don't know what I would have thought of this film previously. I mean, I would have loved it, but I don't know whether I would have understood it as a documentary. But I mean, I'm more and more gravitating towards that idea that i hope doesn't sound like a cop out but that almost everything is documentary in a sense sophie finds the documentary maker who's worked a lot with slavoj zizek the philosopher she said in a q and a on stage at the sheffield doc fest all art is documentary because it's a document of the time like charles dickens his work is documentary because he's documenting the concerns thoughts feelings anxieties of victorian england And in a sense, I love that because it means that, you know, documentary is king and everything is a documentary and people can no longer hive it off to the side as like a sort of independent film thing that's less important than big blockbusters. But I also think it opens up the form in a really radical way to understand everything as a documentary. I mean, I can understand why sort of streaming services or television channels need to sort of Treat documentary in a more conventional way because there is a certain understanding of what we're going to see when we look at a documentary. That and it wouldn't be helpful to say everything is a documentary in your TV listings. But from a kind of a slightly more, I guess, academic or philosophical angle, I love the idea that everything is documentary and that we are all documentary makers in a sense. You know, when you post a story to your Instagram, like that is a document of who you are.
1: That's like a, such a cool way to think about it um, and also like the idea of like we're all perpetually making a documentary of ourselves at this point so thinking about this idea of defining the boundaries of documentary or calling everything a documentary i read in an interview with the director of fraud where he says that what defines a documentary is the intent um what is your take on something like that
2: i think that's a really interesting way to look at it but i don't know if i would fully agree i mean what I said just now about the idea that you know anyone making an Instagram story is actually making a documentary of sorts, lots of those people aren't intending to make a documentary, but I would argue that they still are. I guess, though, that probably what was happening there is Dean w- would have been responding to somebody who said, like your documentary isn't a documentary because you've constructed a fictional narrative from documentary footage. So he's probably intending to say... I see this as a documentary. Therefore, it is a documentary. So I think in that sense, I get what he means. And for sure, fraud has been made with documentary intent behind it by the creator. And I would stand by his definition of documentary in that sense.
1: And so moving on to your second pick, the film is Under the Sun. Could you tell us what this film is about and why you wanted to talk about
2: it today? So Under the Sun blew me away in a completely different way to Fraud. It's an incredibly serious and kind of dangerous piece of art. It was made in North Korea and the filmmakers... Kind of justified their film by positioning it as a film that was cooperating with the North Korean government. So they had this government minder going around with them, helping them film, quote unquote, a typical North Korean family. And it was such a sort of clever and I think courageous way. To go about capturing a portrait of what was actually going on there, they essentially they left the camera rolling in between takes. Uh, they started filming earlier than they said that they were, so you actually get this picture of the government official like telling the sort of family in question, you know, do it again but smile more. So you actually get this picture of how North Korea wants to be perceived, but also what's going on under the surface. And it's kind of terrifying. It's like watching a sort of behind the scenes on 1984 type documentary. I mean, I guess you could sort of argue from a documentary ethics point of view that there was a certain amount of skullduggery going on in that the family didn't know that they were being filmed in between takes either. So arguably that put them in a dangerous position. With the North Korean officials. But what the filmmaker has said, Vitaly Mansky, in, in response to that, is that he thinks that actually the family are probably safe because it's been documented. You know, nothing can happen to them because the Western world has seen them in this documentary. The filmmaker has also said that he's not so sure about whether the government officials who were supposed to be minding them would have got off as lightly or whether there would have been people very unhappy that they were able to do this and film this sort of behind the scenes portrait of how North Korea would go about constructing a film supposedly advertising the kind of North Korean way of life.
1: And so in what ways did the film feel new or groundbreaking to you? Were you inspired by the film in any way? And I'm thinking particularly around ideas of perception and how people or ideas might be cast in a new light through documentary. There's never been a faster or
0: easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
2: That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST.
2: I mean, my goodness, if you want a film to make you feel like you need to be bolder with your filmmaking, I think this is it because we all like to think our documentaries are bold and groundbreaking but i think to go right into the heart of a regime like that and film what they didn't want you to film is sort of really up the sort of hardcore end of that scale but it's also i mean it's very interesting on people's behavior when they think they're being filmed versus when they don't think they're being filmed as well and i think that has sort of crossover into you know anything you might film Wherever you're from, I've been falling in love recently with the series How To with John Wilson, which is captured in New York, sort of candid camera style. And you have so much footage in there of people who don't know that they're being observed, although it's in a public place. So it's sort of legitimate. It doesn't feel like you're spying on people. But it's that idea of the way that people change when a camera is on them, I think is really funny. And even the difference between the type of camera. Like we've all seen those videos of people who think they're posing for a photograph, but actually the video is on. And the difference between those behaviors that when you think you're being captured as a still image versus when you think you're being captured as yourself in 3D all singing, all dancing, living colour, is really funny to me. That I think again it's that sort of it is that idea of whether we think we're being documented or not changes human behavior and people being filmed when they don't know there's a camera on them even your posture changes as soon as you sort of think that you're being filmed I mean some people freeze up I do I'm not very good at being on camera other people are very natural at it but I mean often that's actually just that they're sort of have a superior understanding of how to appear natural on camera which is not necessarily the same thing as just being able to forget that the camera is there and so
1: thinking about how the personal sort of mingles with the format of image making. Vitaly Mansky, the director of Under the Sun, has claimed that all filmmakers should be making personal films. As a commissioner and a producer, what kinds of stories do you look to tell? Is a personal connection important to you when you're looking at different stories?
2: I think so, yes, but it doesn't have to be in the sense of autobiography. I I don't think that I have to make a film that's about middle-aged white woman from Bournemouth in the UK who has a similar background and life story to me. I think it's got to go wider than that. I like stories that have a connection with my sense of humour, I think, or with my appreciation for switching up formats and doing something different with a form. I mean, I made a documentary recently called Guilt-Free Pleasures, which has just gone out on the BBC. And I think that hit a lot of my sweet spots in terms of it's, so it's about celebrating trashy cinema. We've got a lot of material in there from Cats and Plan 9 from Outer Space and The Room and these sort of legendary, so bad they're good films. But that's a kind of a way to get people engaged with this argument around guilt and culture and why we think of some films slightly less respectable than than others and then that leads us into this idea of whether guilt can be useful and whether when we're considering influential pieces of art that are stitched into our culture and that have been embedded there for decades like whether it works to kind of cancel a piece of work, or whether actually you have to sort of try and find another way through with big and kind of interwoven pieces of work. I mean, I'm sort of thinking of something like Chinatown, and we get into it in the film. And I like that idea of getting into sort of meaty places through a kind of sense of humour and kind of coming into it in a way that sort of leads people along so that they're hopefully entertained and having fun. And then we get into something a little bit more gritty or toothsome. I think that's sort of how I am engaged personally as a viewer. I'd much prefer that sort of approach when I'm watching something like, I mean, Fraud, for example, that is a funny film when you watch it. And Under the Sun, even though it's grim in some ways and it made me cry, there's also unintentional humour in aspects of that film that I think come out of the contrast between how North Korea wants to be perceived and what North Korea actually is. I'd like to... Go
1: to your final pick, which is casting John Bonet. Can you start off by telling us what
2: it's about? So, casting John Bonet is notionally about the kind of case of John Bonet Ramsey, who was a little girl who was murdered and they never caught the killer. And notionally, the film is about the casting process for a drama based on the case. I say notionally because the actual film based on the case doesn't exist. It's a kind of f- framing device that enables Kitty Green, the filmmaker, to film the auditions of all of these actors to play the parts involved in the case. So, you know, John Bonet's mom, dad, brother, John Bonet herself, which is, I think, a really interesting sort of way into this story where. It becomes much less, it's not like one of those sort of true crime pieces where it's about maybe trying to unearth new evidence or crack a long cold case. It's more about our fascination with the human performance of who you are in extreme circumstances. We've sort of seen this in the UK too with the Madeleine McCann case. And I think sort of it was seen a lot with Amanda Knox in Italy, those kinds of cases where there's intense public interest and people are reading the press conferences and news programmes and footage of the people who've been accused of kind of grievous crimes in our attempt to read their performance and figure out what's going on there. So it's, sort of similar to what I was talking about earlier, that need that human beings have to scrutinise each other, to figure out whether we can trust each other, to figure out what's going on with somebody, and you know whether we believe them, whether we buy into the version of themselves that they're presenting to the world. And this is obviously picking like one of the most extreme cases of that, where people are suspected Of a grievous crime. And I think, you know, there are reasons for the court reporting rules around these kinds of cases because it can be the case that we're very influenced by how we expect people to perform under those kinds of circumstances. It's really an extension of what's happened in politics sort of since the advent of television, where you're not so much selling your policies, you're selling yourself. And I think that's what we demand of people in high pressure situations, is the idea that you buy them and you think that they're on your side and you find them at least trustworthy as far as you are concerned though they might not be trustworthy to the people that you dislike it's it sort of feels like it's coming from a very tribal space but now on a global stage and we see that with these high profile crime cases as well John Bonnet Ramsey I mean it's a while ago but in this grand scope of human history it falls within the decades when this has been playing out via mass mediums like television
1: and so thinking about that particular case and this film which has been called infuriating and unsatisfying as well as magnificent and unique. Do you recall your initial reaction to casting Bonnet?
2: I remember feeling on high alert while I was watching it because it is such a sensitive subject and you really want to trust that the filmmaker knows what they're doing and isn't pointlessly prodding at an old wound because I think that is the danger with a lot of true crime is it it knows that there's an audience there because the subject is gruesome and titillating and sensational and it's very, very easy to fall into that trap of using those sorts of subjects as a kind of almost just automatic go-to for audience interest. I don't think that's what Kitty Green does here, but certainly you're on the alert for that as you're watching. And I can see why it read that way to some people because we all interpret things differently. I mean, God knows we're all watching a slightly different version of a film because we bring such a lot of ourselves to a film. Like You and I have not seen the exact same film. We're coming to it with a completely different past, background, personality type.
1: Definitely. That was a film that I remember when I sat down to watch it. I was thinking, like, would we get any greater insight on the case? And what you end up with is a greater insight on the community that has been affected by this case and how the different social mores and this specific history have affected their everyday lives and how they're trying to figure out how to move forward despite being in the shadow of this sort of large phenomenon that is not only locally significant, but also in some ways globally significant as the coverage of the case becomes international. And I want to talk a bit more about the filmmaking of casting John Bonet* and the other films that you've talked about, which all show a very deliberate awareness of the constructed nature of documentaries, particularly in Kitty Green's film, where the recreated scenes intentionally feature filmmaking equipment, the setting up of different scenes. What do you think there is to be gained from this reflexive or self-aware attitude towards making documentaries where you can actually see the different pieces coming together?
2: I think it's mostly a maturing of the form in filmmaking to acknowledge that that's what's going on when making a film. But I think critiquing it on the idea that it's constructed is sort of a limited understanding of the form. And with filmmakers like Kitty Green and Robert Green, No Relation, and Vitali Mansky and people like that, I think all they're doing is foregrounding something that you have to be aware is there anyway. And I don't think it's any bad thing that people are getting a little bit more aware of the fact that filmmaking isn't a neutral or objective thing. There's this idea of you still see it in... I think, comment sections on film reviews a lot where people are like, well, this is fine, but I felt like the writer, the film journalist had an agenda. And what I wanted was an objective review. And the idea that there's any such thing as an objective review is ridiculous. And I think it's sort of the same when people are upset about the idea that a documentary maker would foreground the fact that they're making a documentary. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that's always clever or interesting to do there has to be a reason for it and I think in Kitty Green's film there is because we're both making a documentary and we're making a documentary about making a documentary but you know showing a boom mic isn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean that you've done very intelligent self-reflexive documentary making but the idea that it's necessarily a sort of a postmodern trick, I think, is something that we need to push back on, because there's no real reason that documentary you know, initially evolved not to show the equipment. That's a convention, I think, probably borrowed from fictional filmmaking, where we're trying to will the suspension of disbelief and pretend that we actually are in these fictional worlds. But documentary isn't fiction, so I don't know that it necessarily needs to borrow from the visual language of fiction.
1: And so thinking about how all these films are similar or intersect in terms of approach and the approach that the filmmakers bring to each project, one thing that I did notice is that Kitty Green and Vitaly Mansky are both outsiders. Green is an Australian filmmaker exploring the idea of the American dream through this film, and Mansky is a Russian-Ukrainian filmmaker capturing life in North Korea. They're very much on the periphery, not only of the action in the film, but also the culture that's being documented. What do you think that peripheral vision or perspective brings to their documentaries?
2: Yeah, that's so interesting. I hadn't noticed that the sort of all three films, in fact, because I think Dean Fleischer-Camp is not from like necessarily the same sort of background as the family he documents in fraud. But yeah, that's a real thread running through all of those. I think it's really interesting when you step into a different environment what you notice compared to people who are attuned to that environment and for them it's very, very normal. I mean, we all do this. It's that thing of like when you're inviting people around to your house and you sort of look around almost with new eyes and it's like, oh God, actually, I really need to tidy up the bathroom. That's disgusting. How have I not seen that all week that that's in such a state? Or in a positive way, your friend comes around and says, oh my goodness, I really love what you've done with such and such. And you're like, have I? Oh, yeah, I guess that is nice. I think an outside eye will really pick up on things that we take for granted. Or even in our work, so Beyond Clueless, the film I mentioned at the start of our time together, that was about American movies of the noughties and nineties, and very specifically American high school movies and None of the people who worked on that film had been to an American high school. And I mean, I'm sure that American high schools as depicted in Bring It On and Eurotrip and all of these kinds of films are probably not really like that. But we were bringing this almost anthropological sort of eye to it. It felt almost like a nature documentary at times, that sort of idea of analysing american ideas of cliques or queen bees and cheerleaders and all of this kind of culture that's quite foreign to the uk and at the same time something that sort of uk teenagers almost aim to ape like proms have started being called proms within my lifetime like they weren't called that when i was at school it would just be like your end of year disco or whatever but the idea of the prom has been exported very successfully yeah, I think it's fascinating that sort of interplay between different cultures that are broadly similar, but also have their differences. I think that's a really rich area for a documentary.
1: And so thinking about your own projects a bit more, do you think about who is telling the story or the voices you're giving a platform for? Is that something that you think about as you're picking projects to work on, but also while making them?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, fish story that I mentioned earlier, that is Casper's story. You wouldn't make that story without kind of having access to the person whose anecdote it was because it's not just about what you are saying, it's about how you are saying it and in the case of that, you need it to be said by Casper. It's integral to the way that he tells it, I think. I think You have to be careful where you're analysing a scene or a demographic or a cultural phenomenon that does not have cultural dominance and just think about whether it's really your story to tell or not. I mean, it was something that we thought about but then felt was okay in the case of Lasting Marks, which is a doc we did about a very obscure piece of UK legislation whereby a court decided that you could be tried and convicted of having committed an assault on somebody even if they had consented so it was uh, basically a homophobic judgement against a gay group of s and m enthusiasts in the 80s in england and you know men were sent to prison even though everything that they were doing was with their own consent and they were into it those men are sort of older now it wasn't really likely that they, any of them were going to sort of make a documentary about that themselves. So it felt like actually our role there was to facilitate the telling of their story. But there are absolutely, you see all the time, I think, in documentary, that sort of idea of people feeling like they're the saviour going in and telling somebody else's story. And actually, maybe they should consider being a facilitator, or maybe they should consider backing off altogether. I think it's something that we're all still figuring out as a community, documentary makers, like when it is somebody's turn to speak, and when it is somebody else's Turn to take center stage. I think it's something that you, it's difficult to have hard and fast rules about. You sort of, I think you sort of know whether you're doing that thing of going in and taking over or whether you're doing it in a legitimate way. But it's as long as you're having the conversation, thinking about it, that's a good place to start.
1: Right. Thinking about not only your role in filmmaking, but also the role in telling the story and not just parachuting in. It's really about like, how can you? bring those experiences to the fore in the most empathetic and authentic way. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah,
2: and it's about who has the power as well, because I'm not by any means saying that people should only get to tell their own stories. I mean, if you had Harvey Weinstein making the Harvey Weinstein documentary, you would have a very different documentary than if somebody else from outside of his power nexus told that story. So I wouldn't say for a moment that people should always tell their own stories, but you have to think about who has the power.
1: Exactly. Catherine, thank you for joining us on The Doc Exchange. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. You too. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolfe. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound were edited by content is queen and our artwork is by nash Casick. if you enjoyed the show you can subscribe on apple Podcasts, acast spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts if you want to watch even more great documentaries join us at real stories on youtube amazon facebook and other platforms thank you for listening we'll be back next week